Well now, looks like you found me. I'm surprised. I had to up stakes pretty quick. Turns out that various prepper types might not appreciate the concept of you criticizing just how much toilet paper they brought with them. Isn't that right, Gerald? Now you see, normally I'd give you a blurb. A whole big old prompt to work with. But I've been on a little bit of a tight schedule. So instead, I want you to tell me a story of change. Be it of a person into something else. Or maybe something more sinister. I'll leave that for you to decide. Your hook, as it were, is change. Now you may have noticed that this story isn't quite on par with what it could be. Turns out when you're building a new base of operations because somebody has decided to get upset, you have to make some sacrifices. So, in the nature of this being a creative endeavor, here you have a work in progress. So settle in and listen to a story of an old airfield. The Airfield I live in a small town near Walla Walla, a place big enough to warrant a town hall, a supermarket, and one of everything else you might need but nothing you might want. Big stores, entertainment, beyond the diner or the bar, and you'll need to go into Walla Walla proper, or cut west towards Pasco and Kennewick. Not the most ideal of places for a young man in his mid-twenties, but I've lived here most of my life and you get used to it. And we certainly have enough weirdness to keep my internet-corrupted brain ticking. We do two things well here. Fruit and Halloween. Apple orchards stretch out into the distance all around town, penning in the highway, the distribution and processing centers, and hiding the arid terrain beyond. Migrant and seasonal workers come and go. Fruit moves and so does money. Through this our town does well, prospers and stays somewhat small. Rural and spread out, but close enough that you certainly know your neighbors, whether you want to or not. Halloween, though, is where it's at for me. Always has been, and that's where a number two thing comes in. There's an old army airfield just at the edge of town, and every year old Mr. Tuckins has people come in and the place becomes a complex of mazes and haunted houses. Actors and people from neighboring communities are hired to dress up as World War II-era soldiers, covered in fake blood and gore. For a moderate admission, people from all over the eastern half of the state can have some scary fun. And for the locals, there's a bit of a challenge, at least for us younger folks. If we can make it through the haunted stuff and spot several signs from the unit that used to be stationed there, we get a summer job. The pay is pretty good. Two lumps of cash. One at the beginning of the summer, and one in October when he shuts it all down for the main attraction in the next contest. Half a year's good pay for easy work. Once a day, I walk the field and its fence line, making sure nothing is broken or needs repair, generally towards afternoon. Most often, I like to try and be done by early evening. The place gives me some serious creeps once the sun starts setting. Every so often, I'd spot a person or two, actors, I assume, standing around smoking just inside one of the hangars. They'd stop what they were doing and watch me pass, and the coldness of their stares was a very real thing. 
I always thought they were there to feed into the local legends. Anyway, if you do well enough in the contest, you might get a second year of easy money. And I wanted that second year. Something to help me move out and into a bigger town. I wasn't above doing some walking and investigating to try and get it. Besides, the old airfield was just genuinely creepy, and I'd been meaning to wander around the buildings forever. My interest trending towards the weirdness of the place. Young folk are encouraged to try for it every year until they are butting up against 30, and then they are granted a consolation prize to sorts. Generally a crate of apples, and then they're sent on their way. Last year it was me. Next year, if all goes well, it'll be me again. Mr. Richard Tuckins is the former commanding officer of the airfield and its current owner. He's an old guy who lives near the center of town. He's mean and bitter and wealthy. Wealthy enough that our small town politics tend to revolve around what Tuckins wants. He's an odd old man, preferring to dress in wools and older fabrics and fashions. He drives an old green staff car around town. Big white circle and star on the doors and a small advertisement for his haunted attraction on the back window. He's not the nicest man you'll ever meet. Bitter. Mostly he keeps to his home near the town center, or out at his farm near the larger orchards. That abrupt attitude of his lends itself to coldness, and he's prone to outbursts where he seems to believe he has an authority or a weight. Pour him too much coffee and he'll give you a dressing down. Dress in something less than he thinks a young man should? Same story. Every so often something more extreme happens, and he uses his money and influence to have an official rezone property to prevent a new home going in, or make a mention or two to friends that he has at the bank, to make a loan harder thing to come by. The older folks say he used to be much worse, violent, and chalk a number of disappearances up to him from back in the day. Local folklore puts a lot on his head. Two stories are floated around the most. The shooting stars, seen in the skies around the airfield, are said to be the bombers that crashed. Bright orange and yellow balls that would drift over town and then glide down to points out in the orchards or into the mountains. The superstitious amongst the older folks said they were the Tuckins' mistakes. Bombers from the 40s that had crashed during training or shakeout flights. The 88th Heavy Bombardment Group had been placed here in the early portion of the decade, used to train up bomber crews and replacements that would take the fight to either Europe or the Pacific. For a few months, the bombers stationed there had a tendency to develop mechanical failures, especially when attempting to fly and land at night. Further out in the plains and scrub, there are still a few wrecks you can find. Big metal skeletons serving as a type of memorial to the dead crews. Roads and vehicles being what they were, the further out from the field they crashed, the less likely help was going to be fast in getting to them. Occasionally, people up late hear the sound of large planes flying in and out of the field. The more superstitious folk in town think that our very own shooting stars are the after-images of these bombers. Some people say that the lights of the field still come on now and again, signaling the planes to come home, and that Mr. Tuckins has people check them to make sure they work. Others say it's the ghost of old dead ground crews, angry at pilots over everything from lost money at cards to stolen girlfriends. That every time the lights come on, there are dark shapes that sit around the field waiting for the planes or to see that the work they did to sabotage the aircraft was successful. The shadows that walk around the outskirts of town are said to be the captains and crew of those ships. It's died down some, but most blame him personally for the crashes and fatalities. He doesn't do much these days except the contest, which most folks say is his way of keeping the strip alive, and apologizing in his own way for the losses. 
though the fact that he runs the airfield as a haunted house tends to throw that last idea out the window. Some people, though, have a really dark sense of humor. Growing up, I'd seen the shooting stars. More often than not, they were military planes heading out to the nearby test ranges, and everyone had seen the shadows, but the actors tuck in hires every year, and migrant workers in the orchard have always been explanation enough. Though growing up, I was convinced there was this one in particular that kept making his way to my house. Peaked cap and bulky jacket just visible at the tree line between my place and the airfield. It stuck with me enough that I still get weirded out on nights when the moon is full and the shadows amongst the trees are deep. I live at the edge of town. About ten minutes of walking through thin forest brings me to the airstrip. Makes the job easier. For the past week, I've been hearing the planes start up about 10 p.m., well after you'd think there would be a flight departing or arriving to practice anything for the haunted airfield. Every so often I can see the lights from the airstrip kick on for a few minutes. Dull and orange, almost like tiny fires. Then they would cut out and sequence amongst the branches and the planes are gone. Sometimes I would see Tuckin's car go bumping down the road back into town afterwards. A few days of listening to this and I decided to go have a look. Mr. Tuckins had been talking about doing something big in the next year or two. Maybe this year he was going to up the theatrics and had an old plane or two that would be showing up for the haunted field. It was about eight when I left my house. Flashlight, backpack, some water in my camera, smokes in my trusty Zippo to kill any additional time. I figured I would have a look around the hangars and offices, find a place near the tower or in the barracks with a view of the strip, and see what was what, and what I could use to get a leg up. The, wood, the woods were still, the late summer sun nearly down, but the heat of the day still lingering in amongst the undergrowth and along the dirt road. A chill greeted me as I broke into the trees, remembering the peaked cap. Occasional mosquitoes and crane flies bothered me as I ambled along the track, otherwise it was quiet, uneventful, dead. I stretched a ten-minute walk into twenty, making my way towards the building side of the airstrip, there was a weak spot in the fence I could get through, avoiding the attention of any crew or delivery that might be showing up later than I expected. The trees broke open out into the open fields near the strip, extending out on all sides. Tall grass had gone a bone white with the hot and dry summer months. Crickets, grasshoppers, and other insects filled the empty space with their static. Moving through the grass at a leisurely pace, I made the fence as the sun was starting to fully descend. I peeled back a roll of the chain link and pushed my way through onto the cracked tarmac. Ahead were the hangars to my left, and the tower structure and barracks to my right. Further down the field were the Quonset huts, the same rounded shape as the hangars but smaller. I couldn't see any signs of people being there, but I did notice a few new pallets of boxes and plywood inside one of the hangars. I avoided the front door of the tower building. From previous walks along the fence, I knew that there was a second entrance between it and the barracks. I made for it and found it was unlocked. It opened onto a dark hallway. The place was powered, and there were switches inside, but I decided a flashlight would fit the mood of my mission to observe more so than lighting the place up and letting everyone know I was there. I had a couple hours before the earliest I'd heard the aircraft or seen the lights. The hall was fairly sparse. Two offices on one side of a small lobby, two ready rooms on the other, a dog-leg stair leading up to the second story, 
cracked tile floors, once white with blackened grouting, and stains from various pools of fake blood and fluids over the years dotted here and there. The walls were a faded greenish-blue with chips and cracks, exposed nail boards for signage and decorations here and there. Naked bulbs hung down both sides with a few more in the lobby. I edged my way through to the stairs. The space was spooky, and had the odd feeling of being full. On the wall was a sign left up by Mr. Tuckins for the original unit way back in the 40s. A simple circle with a star and dot marked 88th Bombardment Group. I pulled my camera from my pack and popped in the hot shoe flash. Taking a few photos of the sign, I slung the camera around my neck and stepped up over to the stairs. Outside, the last of the light was fading, and the moon hadn't quite made it up yet. Through the windows, the effect was a pale pink glow, but nothing that really penetrated the building. Other than the occasional crickets and insects I could hear through the door I'd left open downstairs, it was utterly silent. I mounted the steps up into the second story. Up here, there was a banistered hall overlooking the stair, and three more offices. An officer's quarters, and then a door to the roof. The attraction of the haunted airfield never allowed folk up here. Actors would stay on the stairs and scare people through the building below. A few would be up in the tower proper, with some lights and flashing effects illuminating them from within. I stopped a moment on the landing and looked around. There were little placards on the doors. Shining my light on the closest one, I made out the scuff sign reading operations. Sounded interesting. I tried the handle and found it unlocked. Pushing the door open, I was confronted by metal shelving units, stacked floor to ceiling with banker's boxes. Working my way in, I read some of the labels. 1940 Jan through June. 1941 December. 1946 June. And many dates in between. There were also boxes marked personnel, logs, requisitions. Each was coated in dust. Nothing had been done in here for years. I took a chance and popped the lid off of one of the marked logs. Inside were dozens of small brown chapbooks. Names, ranks, and branch marked on the front cover. Picking one at random, I flipped through page after page of tight text I couldn't make sense of. I got the impression that it was basic stuff, though. Times of flights and notes on what happened. Nothing that stood out. I put the book back and picked another box. More of the same books, the same type of text. I lost track of time, alone in the quiet and dusty space with the books and forms. I don't know what it was specifically that kept me there. Curiosity consumed me, though. Eventually, I was towards the back of the room and found something odd. A box marked Tuckins, R. I pulled it down from the shelf and opened the lid. Inside was a collection of flight logs, various composition books, and a handful of what looked like journals. I plucked one of the journals and leaned against the shelves. Flipping pages and seeing handwritten notes on aircraft... Airmen, problems around the base with fights between air crews, the commanding officer and ground crew. All the things brought up by the old-timers in the diner. Towards the end, it started to get a bit weird. Mentioning breaches in the fence line, and sightings of unidentified persons near the hangars and sheds. I was getting sucked into the journals. The writing was getting more wordy, more relatable. I took all three, shoving them into my pack next to my camera. I definitely lost track of time. 
If the sounds I'd heard and the approximate time meant anything, I had about 45 minutes until whatever planes had been buzzing the airstrip and whatever had been happening here on the ground might happen again. I put the box back and left the room, closing the door behind me. The next door opened into nothing. An empty room, so I moved off to the last. The placard read, Officer Commanding, Tuckins. And the placard made me shiver despite the heat of the late summer night. I tried the door. No luck. I was already in a place I probably shouldn't have been, and I didn't want to break anything. The box the journals in my bag had been in was so caked in dust, like most of the room, that I wasn't so worried about my amateur spy work being found out in the off chance that Mr. Tuckins decided to come looking for something in amongst all of those boxes. But breaking in didn't feel like the thing to do. Maybe if I found keys somewhere, maybe if I could get up here again some other night if the weirdness continued, but not now. Instead, I made my way to the door at the end of the hall. It was unlocked, and led out onto the roof. Presenting a small metal staircase, it went up another story into the glass-windowed tower. I decided that would give me the best view, so up I went. The darkness of the place was settling in, as I popped open the door and went inside. Inside was a little cleaner, most likely from the actors using the space during the haunted airfield attraction. The air, however, was stuffy. Looking around at the windows, I noticed some of them could open. Propping up a few on their steel rods, I let in some of the warm night air. I pulled my camera out of my bag and set it on the small card table I was sitting next to. Set my bag down next to the leg and lit up a smoke. I checked my phone. Twenty minutes. Outside, there still didn't seem to be much movement. And I looked across to the open hangars and saw only stacks of boxes, pallets of pressboard and plywood. But towards the back, I could just make out something metallic. I squinted, trying to see through the gloom. Eventually grabbing up my camera and using the zoom the lens afforded me to get a better look at the car. An old staff car from the 40s. With writing on the back window that was facing me. Mr. Tuckins was here. As if this revelation was a trigger, the lights at the far end of the runway came on. A deep clunk reverberating through the administration building as switches were thrown somewhere below. I felt the hairs raise on the back of my neck, and grabbed up my things. Running from the control tower to the base of the stairs, I ducked around the squat structure and crouched down on the far side behind an air intake. If there were planes about to come in, I didn't want to be where Mr. Tuckins might end up to watch them. I'd left the doors open at ground level, through to the roof and the one at the top of the metal stairs on the squat tower. It was stupid, and I was cursing myself for not thinking to close them up behind me. I hoped the Tuckins might assume it had been one of the work crews dropping stuff off, or just wouldn't care, but of course he would. This was his airfield. He was an exacting old man. From below I heard a door slam, and I held my breath. The building was small, and though he was old, it wouldn't take him long to get up to where I was. I started to rehearse what I might say to him. Something that didn't sound hollow and didn't reek of me just looking for a jump on the contest. But as minutes passed, I began to think maybe I'd gotten lucky. There were no further sounds coming from the open door, and a part of me wished I could see through, but the tower blocked a direct view of the hallway, affording me just a bit of the door frame and the void space beyond. 
There was another clunk, and on the other side of the hangars, a pair of sodium lights stuttered on above the gate, casting harsh light around indiscriminately. I couldn't do anything about the lingering smell of my cigarette, and my certainty that I was going to be found intensified. I heard scuffs and footsteps from the tiled floor inside, the rattle of keys and then a door being thrown open. The void space I'd been watching lit up from an incandescent bulb. A desk lamp, perhaps. I faintly heard paper shuffling. And then Tuckins shouted something, slightly slurred. Get out! I started. I hadn't seen any cameras in the months I'd been walking around the place. Even if he knew someone had been here, there was no way he could be certain that I was still here. I said get out of my office. All of you. Dismissed, goddammit. He bellowed. His voice was definitely impacted. He'd been drinking. My breathing stopped again. From in the hall came a clattering of heavy boots. A whole group of people leaving the office and heading back into the building itself. A whole group of people I knew damn well hadn't been in that building when I'd been inside. Or if they had, had been so quiet I hadn't heard them through thin walls. I risked a peek around the corner and caught a quick glimpse at the back of a bulky figure turning down the stairs after the other bootsteps I could hear. A bald head peeked around the doorframe of the office at it, pulling itself back inside and closing the door behind it. Tuckins was in his office. I was certain now that it was indeed his office. The journals in my pack from the 40s were his journals. This was his airfield, and I had made a mistake. I pulled myself back around the intake and peered over the low wall surrounding the roof. Below, the figures fanned out into clumps on the runway. Just outlines, but I could see that they were all having very animated conversations with each other. Hands moving. The occasional shove or bald fist, but I couldn't hear them speak. One by one, I saw them stop. Heads raised as if smelling the air. They turned back towards the building and looked up at the tower. The stillness that overcame them was deeply wrong. Hesitantly, I raised my camera over the ledge and snapped off a few photos, pulling myself back when I saw them make their way to the door. I cast around the roof looking for another way down, or a better place to hide. The job, the money wasn't worth this. I should have just taken my chances in spotting the stupid signs during the event. I could hear boots on tiles again, and a pounding on Mr. Tuckin's door. I said go away. It wasn't my fault, damn it. I told you all before. I heard him scream. Glass breaking against the wall to emphasize his point. Blame the war department. I threw myself under the stairs to the tower, hoping that the dark would obscure me better than the air intake. The hammering increased, multiple fists beating at the wood, cracks and splintering echoing out of the doorway. I could see now, just barely, a dozen men in what looked like flight suits. Big, bulky leather jackets and boots outlined by the pale glow of the sodium lamps coming through the windows over the stairway. The door they pounded on sounded like it was coming apart at the seams, the cracks and splinters taking on a more reedy tone as more and more of it was battered away. Inside, Tuckin screamed insults. And then it happened. The single deep bark of a handgun. The solid thudding impact of a round striking the wall opposite the office. And then three more. 
I breathed a curse and wondered if I'd just heard a murder. But the pounding intensified one last time and the door gave out. A sudden darkness flooded the space, and I heard one last shout out of Tuckins. It wasn't my fault! Then a final boom. From above came the distant drone of engines. Several large aircraft wheeled in over the airfield, their many propellers thrumming and shaking the ground below as they scattered out into the night. I looked up then, watching the shapes of old bombers glinting in the moonlight, watching them spear towards the ground at the mountains to the west and trailing a pale fire. The lights of the runway flashed an intense orange, just before the bombers impacted the turf and the noise ceased. I blinked, realizing that I'd stood up to watch them fall. I turned slowly, feeling the weight of eyes on my back, and arrayed before me were the figures. And I realized then that they were silhouettes. Regardless of how hard I stared at them, they wouldn't render into more discernible shapes. I raised my hands over my head, not knowing what else to do but surrender. The foremost shadow shook its head, its brimmed cap the only real indication I got that it was doing so. Hesitantly, it raised two fingers to its lips, and I recognized the gesture. From my shirt pocket, I pulled my pack of smokes, taking and lighting one before handing over my pack and Zippo. The cap figure shared them out, one to each of the others before they came together to light them. The Zippo revealed the horrid truth of their appearance charred flesh and gaping holes in their faces and about their bodies. I felt my jaw go slack. The capped one pulled my free hand up and pressed my pack and lighter into it with something else, and then they turned and left through the door. I stood a moment, uncertain as to what had just happened, heading back to the roof hall when I heard the main door shut. I watched as the figures marched down the runway lights going out in sequence as they passed. I was still watching as the very last of the lights flared up again and the capped figure turned back to look. It gave me a small finger salute and disappeared into the darkness. I waited up there for an hour, waiting for them to come back or for Tuckins to come out of his office and start shouting at me, waiting for anything to make sense. And eventually I looked down to what the capped figure had pressed into my hand along with my smokes. It was a large patch, singed around the edges. A single star, white with a red dot in the center on a blue circle. 88th bomb group on a scroll above. I shuddered and placed it in my pocket. Walking back inside, I saw the carnage in Tuckin's office. What was left of him was sprawled over his desk. Stepping inside, I looked down at the framed photo he'd clutched, a group of airmen. In his other hand was an old cult. A smashed bottle of bourbon littered the floor up against the wall. I stood there a while, too, taking in the scene. Coming out of the building, I took out my phone and called the police. I told them that Tuckin shot up the place and then himself, and sat on the steps waiting for them to show. Before they arrived, I couldn't help but wonder if the shooting stars would ever come back, if we'd ever hear the thrumming thunder of those old planes again, and if the haunted airfield was going to be an attraction, 
or if it was just going to be another haunted airfield. I lit another cigarette and pulled the patch from my pocket and contemplated it, and all that came with it until the police arrived. I got the feeling that some type of justice had been done, but just like the shooting stars, I wasn't meant to fully understand. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me for another episode of Hooks of Horror. I do apologize for the kind of maybe slapdash way in which episode four has released and the delay in getting it out to all of you. Uh, it has been an absolute nightmare of construction and various loud, unrecordable environments, atmosphere, things. Big things have been happening near me, which make it hard for me to produce things for you. But those are over now. Here in the month of October, we're going to be doing things a little different. I'm going to switch up the blurb prompts for single words. Um, some episodes coming soon will have both, and you can choose one or the other. I'm also going to go ahead and give you a bit of a guideline. Please try, if you will, to produce a thing that is 1,500 to 3,000 words in length, and please email me a link to that story or the story itself to hooksofhorrorpod at gmail.com. Also on Twitter at hooksofhorror. And uh, I guess my own Twitter too, which is still a contact point on our uh, website. Uh, any way you want to do it, if you've created something on one of the prompts, I really want to read it for you. Uh, try my hand at narration and improvement and uh, continuing this thing that we're doing. So, here we go. The spooky month. Things are happening. Uh, stick around after this particular weird message to hear something special-ish. Something I'll be including in future patron rewards. Patreon? Patreon? Uh, will be bloopers and... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a taste of what that sounds like here from some of the previous recordings for last episode. You know, feels like the thing to do after such a delay. So, yes, this this is the thing. It's going to continue happening. It's going to continue improving. And I'm glad that you've stuck with me. The tray of empty cups sipped from his hand. <sighs> sipped. They sipped. They sure did. The cups. A third body started... A strange occurrence I had only ever dealt with when I was stressing out over college assignments. Gus, what are you doing? No, that's not Marta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 